Okay, so we're at 11 o'clock, so I think I'll start. I'm gonna do the, I'll do a quick intro before we get into the, the meat and potatoes today. Um, so welcome everybody that's joined us today. This is our fifth of uh, six webinars in our uh, series that we've called Kick COVID to the Curb, uh, which I think it feels more, we, we named it that at the start and it feels more appropriate the further along we go and uh, hopefully with an end in sight. But uh, you no, know, again, the focus was kind of uh, trying to bring in topics and speakers to look post uh, pandemic. So a bit of reflection, but also looking forward. Um, and I think today is, is probably as, uh, as hot a topic as any. Um, just as a reminder, kind of in terms of what we've done to date. So week one, uh, we had a, with Terry from Gillis from Aria, had a, his presentation on culture. So he provided an overview of culture in the context of the pandemic, uh, but more importantly, kind of looking post pandemic and how companies can leverage culture to kind of come out the other side of this thing stronger than ever. Uh, week two, I presented on the future of employee health and wellness, um, a, a tsunami of kind of leading indicators pointing to some pretty concerning um, things coming down the pipeline health-wise post-COVID. Uh, so big focus on mental health, but also physical health as well. So uh, trying to get out in front of that. Uh, week three, we tackled financial wellness, uh, some red flags and opportunities that have kind of come to light uh, because of the pandemic. Last week, we had an awesome pan HR panel talking about the future of remote work um, and uh, different models that organizations have gone to. Uh, so today we have a topic that's kind of always on the forefront, um, pandemic or not, and uh, that's the world of employment law. And the pandemic has probably created, and, and Nick and uh, Ron are gonna talk about uh, maybe some of the new and unique wrinkles uh, that have come up because of COVID. Um, so with that, I'd like to introduce you to Ron LeClaire and Nick Preston of LeClaire & Associates. Um, as a quick intro, uh, they specialize in workplace management law. Um, I've known Ron for a number of years, uh, Nick for the last year or so. Uh, very respected, trusted source in the community uh, for all things employment law. I probably can't count uh, how many times I've called Ron with a uh, what if or what do we do here. Uh, that usually ends up in me telling our clients that you better call them. Um, They've done an amazing job throughout the, the pandemic with like regular updates as things uh, have changed. Just sharing knowledge and insights on kind of this rapidly evolving and constantly changing landscape. Um, and so uh, they're going to touch on a number of those things today. Um, lastly, I think just to sort of tie this back to our webinar series, um, just from working with Ron over the years, I know their kind of value comes from uh, a position of like valuing the employer and employee relationship um, and the power of culture. Um, so that very much aligns with our theme throughout uh, sort of the webinar series and the values of both ARIA and SPM benefits. Without further ado, Ron, Nick, I'll pass it over to you guys to, uh, to walk us through. Thank you so much, Chad. And thank you for having us here today. We're really happy to participate. Always happy to work with you, Chad. Uh, Hopefully I'm right at least some of the time when you call me with questions. Um, you keep calling, so I hope yeah. <laughs> But uh, in any event, no, we're, we're truly pleased and honored to be here um, and echo what you said. I mean, we very much value workplace culture. Uh, we're a little fearful that some of that's, you know, the people and organizations are losing sight of that because they're so inundated with issues around COVID. So what we really wanted to try to achieve today was almost to have our foot in two camps. I mean, clearly the immediate need is around COVID, navigating the pandemic as best we can as organizations, but without losing sight of the future, right? And, and seeing this really as an opportunity to, uh, to, to think about and start to plan for the organizations that we wanna be, right? And, and thinking about how can we come out of this, as you said, better and stronger, and what kind of an organization do we wanna have? So, so that being said, we thought that, you know, Nick uh, would maybe first uh, speak about COVID, specific COVID-related issues, particularly as we hopefully start to come out of the pandemic. Um, you know, Nick has, as you've seen, has done tremendous work in keeping everyone updated. Uh, he's the one that produces the, the regular updates that we've been sending out uh, just on COVID-related topics. So he truly has his finger on the pulse when it comes to legislation, regulation, trends, developments around COVID. So I, I know that we'll all be very interested to hear what he has to say about um, COVID as it stands today and, and how it's impacting our workplace. Um, just interesting note about Nick, he, he actually moved 
to Canada only in December of 2019 uh, from Johannesburg, South Africa. It feels like he's been here forever because he's, he dove right in, you know, he just took the bull by the horns, dove right in, has immersed himself in Canadian culture, Canadian law. Uh, certainly COVID has been, a, you know, quite an introduction to, to Canada, but, you know, he's definitely on top of all of the issues that have arisen. So. So we thought we would start with that, and then maybe I'll just spend a few minutes at the end, Chad, if, if, if there's time, uh, going through what we see as being the real emerging trends, even from a legal slash cultural perspective, and some of the legal opportunities and perhaps pitfalls that we're identifying as we start to emerge from the pandemic and start to develop new workplaces. So that being said, maybe I'll just turn it over to Nick at this point. Thanks very much, Ron. Thanks, Chad, for having us. It's great to be with everyone this morning. Good morning. Uh, unfortunately, you can hear, as, as long as I've been in Canada, I still haven't managed to shake off the accent. So that's still coming through pretty strong and putting in a lot of effort to, to work on that. But uh, COVID has been interesting. And I thought it, it would probably make sense this morning, just from a workplace point of view, to, to just take stock of where we are currently. What's the current status of, of COVID in the workplace? And I thought that we'd probably just kick off with the mandatory stay at home order that's currently in place. And what that means, I think most employers have probably grappled with this already, but if there's any outstanding issues, I thought maybe just covering that is a good starting point. So the first thing is with the mandatory stay at home order, we know that the provincial government's told employers and employees that if you can, you must stay home. You must work from home. Now that works for some employers, but it doesn't work for, for others. And what we saw is this question about who's essential, who do we require to come into the office or the facility, and who's entitled to work from home. Now, Chad's already shared with us that throughout the webinar series, there's already been much discussion around work from home and policies and so forth. Where that is possible, I mean, we have prepared a policy, which I'm happy to share with Chad, which we prepared right at the beginning of the pandemic. It's kind of a, an initial draft, which you can take and make your own. But what it really covers off and maybe I just want to mention some of the high notes of that to the extent that those may have already been covered, maybe they weren't. But I think that there's a definite focus that if you're going to have staff working at home, is what the data security culture in your business is like. COVID came without notice to anyone. No one had policies in place. Many employers, if you look at the statistics, were talking about whether they've considered flex work arrangements and how many of them had. And when COVID hit, it actually turned out that very few people had really properly considered the prospect of, of staff working from home, and certainly not to the degree that you know, employees had to going forward. So there's definitely a focus on data security culture, confidentiality. You've now got people and employees sitting across the province dialing into your infrastructure, your systems, your network, potentially exposing it. And Ron can share some thoughts around that. He's doing a lot of work in the space, but effectively, what you found is that employers would build these walls around the business. Everyone comes in and it's safe and secure within. Well, now everyone's outside of the castle gates. So a lot of those exposure points are alive and well, and we've seen numerous hacking attempts and so forth during COVID. So starting to think about policies, especially where you're going to be sort of institutionalizing a work from home arrangement is an important consideration. Um, and then also just managing performance. I think it's increasingly difficult to manage performance in the same way that we used to before. Previously, I think it's been a sort of, you know, employees in seats approach and you come to work from eight to five or whatever the case may be, or you, you, you take on your shift, you do what you can and you go home. I think with the work from home arrangement, that's, that's very different. People have now got other commitments. There's kids that are outside of school at the moment with schools being closed and so forth. That poses a challenge to performance. And employers obviously still needing to keep their businesses running. And we're certainly seeing a shift there where performance is now being managed on an outcome-based approach, right? So we're rather paying for the results. You've got certain deliverables. How you do them, when you do them is up to you. But these are the deadlines, and this is when we're going to require them back from you. So just a couple of thoughts on work from home uh, while we're in this mandatory stay-at-home order to the extent that, that that's applicable in your business. But what about the other side of the coin? What about employees who can't work from home, or where it's not efficient for them to work from home? Who makes that decision? And can we be challenged? Can we have an inspector come in and say, Nick's sitting behind the desk, why is he not working from home? What do we do with those sorts of things? I mean, at least our sense is that I think it, it still falls back on, on employer prerogative. I think it's up to us as business managers, as leaders, as executives, 
to decide for ourselves what makes sense uh, from an efficiency point of view. If it makes more sense for a particular employee to be in the office, I don't think that there's anything that stops us from doing that. Obviously, we need to prioritize people working from home, but I don't know that that's, it's a hard and fast rule. Now, we have heard rumblings about inspectors coming in, and especially into certain professional offices. The whip was cracked, I think, in our direction once before, saying that they're going to be coming in and they're going to be asking some questions. So I think just you know, some pragmatic planning going forward is if we're going to have people who are coming into the office, and I think it's it's more difficult in a in a sort of office environment because you can probably dial into your emails from home and you can print from home and you can come into the office and collect a file and go back. But I think if we are going to have those people in the office that we're just able to justify it. So I would perhaps just make sure that we have some sort of record or documents in place as to who's going to be at the office, who's not, and why. So if the question's ever asked, we, we can speak from a position of sort of power and you know it's a considered decision going forward. So, so just some thoughts around that. On the issue of inspections, I think over the last few weeks, maybe just a, a, a cautionary note to employers that's been given by the provincial government is that inspections are going to be on the rise. And I think, you know, historically, we've always seen that in sort of manufacturing environments, construction, whatever the case may be. It's now moving into the white collar environment as well. Um, and just to be alive to those sorts of things and to inspect and plan for inspections. I know that the Ministry of Labor has gone and appointed a lot more uh, inspectors. There's been access, uh, quite intensive training that they've undertaken as well. Um, and just a couple of thoughts around that. I think most of us on the line would probably be on top of these things, but the safety plans is the first thing that an inspector is going to ask for. Where is your COVID safety plan? What are you doing with daily screening? What are you doing with masking? What are you doing when there's an outbreak? Uh, and where is that safety plan? Is it easily accessible? Is it put up in the workplace? So that's sort of low-hanging fruit that's easy for us to achieve. I think most employers already have this in place. But if you don't, I would just make sure that that's you know, sort of front of mind uh, when we expect these inspections to come through. Um, then moving along from where we are currently, there's definitely a few hot-button topics that have come up over the past few weeks or months. And I thought it was important to just take stock of where we are with those. And I think the first issue, and it's increasingly in the news, is this issue of vaccines and what impact, if any, that has on the workplace and whether we can mandate vaccines or not. And so often we get the question, both from our existing clients and externally as well, can we mandate vaccines? And I think maybe there's, there's one initial point to start with before we even get to that question. What does our vaccine climate look like in our employment uh, or in our workplace? Do we have a workforce who are all inclined? And I think it's easy in a smaller workplace. If we've got 10 employees, are all 10 employees wanting to get a vaccine as and when they can? Or is only one or two of them wanting to do that? I think it becomes a little bit more difficult in bigger environments where you've got a few hundred employees and there clearly you're going to have sort of a, a bit of a fallout and different views. But I think it's important to at least have that discussion gently or anonymously. I mean, there's a variety of ways that, that one could undertake that. But just to get sort of a climate audit from what your workforce, what the inclinations are around vaccines. If, if everyone's in agreement, well, then I think the decision's easy and everyone can go and get their vaccine and we move forward on that basis. But I think practically and in reality, there are people who are pushing back who are concerned about the vaccines. The, the science I don't think is conclusive yet. There's people that are concerned for other reasons, which I'll go through shortly. And so they're pushing back on, on vaccines. And so this is where the rub comes in, where employers are saying, well, can we mandate a vaccine? And what can we do if you refuse, if you refuse a vaccine? The difficulty with this question, I think, is COVID's brand new. This issue of mandating vaccines in a COVID climate has never been before the courts. So the closest comparator that we have is to go and have a look at the drug and alcohol cases that have moved through the various courts in Canada. And those are certainly instructive as to the flavor that surrounds this, this issue on whether you can mandate testing in a workplace. And there's decisions that have been all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada on drug and alcohol testing. And certainly some of the, the considerations that the court has taken into account, and which I believe any lower court will take into account, when this test case finally gets before a court, is whether there's less intrusive means to achieve the same purpose. Now, here you're going to have employees who are resisting the vaccine saying, well, I'm already masking, I'm social distancing, there's sanitizing, there's daily screening. 
that's that's less intrusive. Why can't we carry on with that? Why do we need to go the further step? And I'm just giving you both sides of the coin here on, on the sorts of arguments that we believe will ultimately play out in court. The other issue that the Supreme Court of Canada has said to date is that it will prioritize personal privacy. So issues around your health data, whether you've had one or you haven't had one, whether you've got an underlying medical condition or not, those are obviously under the focal point as well. And those need to be contextualized within the workplace and within the COVID climate that we currently live with, and then sort of compared with the law. And the final issue is really the one of dignity. And what we have seen to date, and already there's, there's a few decisions that are starting to trickle in through the Human Rights Tribunal. We've seen some pushback on vaccines where employers have tried to ask an employee to get a vaccine or try to mandate vaccines. Those early indications are that there's pushback already on religious grounds potentially, where someone says my religion prevents me from getting a vaccine. We've seen one on the basis of creed, which is effectively your belief. It was an unsuccessful uh, challenge, well, an unsuccessful resistance from the employee because the, the Human Rights Tribunal found that they hadn't managed to prove that there was a, a genuinely and tru truly held belief. And then there could also be medical reasons, underlying medical conditions. We saw yesterday that the, I'm not too sure if it's the province or if it's, or if it's federally, but the AstraZeneca vaccine has now been suspended around these concerns about blood clotting. The government's not saying that they're not going to give AstraZeneca, and if you've had it, they're not saying that there's any issue with that. They're just suspending it so that they can look into the issue further. So this is all driving some of the concern, and I think this is what's driving the climate that we're seeing, where employees are maybe a little bit slow to, to take up vaccines or asking more questions than what they would have ordinarily uh, around a mandated uh, sort of vaccine program. The other issue that the Supreme Court of Canada has said is that particularly in unionized environments, the court would want to see some sort of negotiated agreement around how this is going to work. So how are you going to, how are you going to mandate the, the testing? How's it going to be conducted? What's going to happen around personal privacy, safety, et cetera? Who's going to be administering these vaccines? Uh, because we know now that there's these mobile clinics. We know that some employers are getting clinics sort of on their own workplaces and so forth. So all of these questions sort of come to the, the fore as well. I think the easiest answer to whether you can mandate vaccines is if you have consent, that's first prize, that's the clearest one, it does away with most of the legal risk. If we don't have consent, well, then I think we're waiting for that test case litigation. And Ron and I have said we're very happy to run that litigation, but I think that, you know, for most of us that are on the line, I think we'd want to keep our dollars in our business for the time being, let someone else run the test case litigation, because invariably it's going to go through a variety of appeals until it gets back to the Supreme Court of Canada. This is a pressing issue that Canada needs to hear federally and you know, as a country and get on top of and decide whether you can mandate it or not. If I can just share with you maybe some insights, to date, there's been a couple of arbitration awards on this particular aspect, which, which Ron will chime in on uh, and just give some feedback on. But to date, arbitrators have decided that you can't mandate vaccines. And that was in a health environment, in a medical environment. So all indications are that there's probably more arguments against mandating than for mandating. Now, having said that, if we turn to the other side of the coin, COVID's, COVID poses a very serious risk to the workplace. Never before have we had the concerns around COVID, never before have we had the shutdown of our economy. So I think the context around it is gonna be slightly different, but ultimately it's up for a court to weigh up these issues. And that's why we're really just sounding a cautionary note that there are some articles out there that we've at least seen that are saying you can mandate vaccines. And if employees don't wanna get the vaccine, you can terminate their employment. I think that you're running a, you're sort of walking on thin ice on those issues only because it's uncharted territory. There are so many competing interests that a court will need to take into account. And I think that that's a, that's a bold uh, proposition. So we would just really sound a, a cautionary note there. Just a few other issues around vaccines. We've seen a couple of questions and I thought maybe we'd just keep it sort of interactive today and share with you some of the, the live questions that we're picking up because I think that they're relevant to most workplaces. But with vaccines becoming more freely available, we're certainly seeing a lot of employees coming into the workplace to say, well, I've now had my vaccine. I don't need to do daily screening. I don't need to socially distance. I don't need to, to wear a mask anymore. And we've had a lot of questions around what is the position on this? Because the law doesn't really go that far. It doesn't say, well, what happens after we've all gone through these vaccines? What does tomorrow hold for us? 
And I think the short answer to this is currently public health recommendations, advice and guidance is that all of these COVID protocols will continue to be enforced and applied even after you've had a even after you've had a vaccine. And I think the reason for that is that we've got the variants that are coming in. And I know one of them, my country's been, a, my home country's been accused of bringing one of them in. I just wanted to con sort of confirm and make it clear that I arrived in Canada long before COVID did. And so I'm not the culprit there, but um, the variants are of some concern. And I think that until such time as the, the science is out around the variants, that masking and social distancing and daily screening will continue. We know that daily screening is now going to be active. So I just mentioned that because I'm seeing quite a few inspectors asking for that and sort of giving orders to employers that they've got to have more active screening uh, around the, the daily entry and exit of, of staff as well. And then I think the other thing is just around the science around being vaccinated. Once I've received a vaccine, I don't know that the science is saying you can never get COVID. I don't know that the science is saying you can never sort of transmit COVID or be contagious to someone else in the workplace. Certainly, I think once you've had a vaccine, if you do get COVID, it's unlikely you're going to land up in hospital and it's probably just going to pass through. But I think that there's the jury's still out around how contagious it may be. And until such time as we've got more science on that, I don't see the province sort of relaxing any COVID protocols. So for the time being, everything is complied with and we continue, even if you've had a vaccine. I think the one other aspect that comes up quite a bit is what about the Occupational Health and Safety Act? So Nick, you're saying that we can't mandate vaccines, but go and have a look at the Occupational Health and Safety Act. It says that an employer must take every reasonable precaution to protect the workplace. So isn't every reasonable precaution mandating vaccines? Absolutely, it may be. But I think that when you read what the Occupational Health and Safety Act is saying, it's got to be founded in the law. And here I've shared with you some of those competing interests. It's not an absolute rule and it's not at all costs. It still has to be, you know, sort of measured between the competing interests. And that's why I still think that there's test case litigation going forward. And the other thing is founded in the law currently is all the existing COVID protocols. So if I'm following all of those existing COVID, COVID protocols, then I am taking every reasonable precaution. Remember, it's qualified. It doesn't say every precaution, no matter what. It says reasonable. So just a couple of thoughts there, because we get this pushback. And I think with so much being written about COVID, most employees are almost more schooled on this issue than us. So when there's an issue, or when there's an instruction, or when there's a question in the workplace, I'm finding more and more clients coming to us and saying, I received this email from an employee, what do we do? And there's more law in there than most cases that you'll read coming out of the courts, because they've gone and they've read all these things, and there's all these competing views, and you know they've taken a particular position and put that forward. So I just wanted to share that, uh, that with all of you. And then another hot button issue that's come out in the last uh, two weeks or so is this issue of paid leave. We saw in Ontario, we've now got Bill 284, which frankly has taken most of my two weeks uh, just sort of helping employers navigate how to understand this, how to apply it. Um, I sort of, I, I had, a, I had a, a discussion with a client and we were actually joking and saying, you know, as of April 19th, a lot more people had headaches and symptoms than ever before, right? Because you now had the paid leave coming in. So just quickly how this, how this all works. So effectively, Bill 284 uh, adds on to what the Employment Standards Act already provides. We know that under the legislation, you can take infectious disease emergency leave, which is job protected leave for any reason that qualifies under, under that regulation that's COVID specific. So if you've got to look after kids due to school or daycare closures, if you're looking after a relative or a family member, if you yourself are sick, if you're isolating, quarantining, or if you've been instructed to remain home by an employer, those are basically the reasons under which you would qualify for infectious disease emergency leave. It doesn't have any limits on it necessarily, um, and it is job protected. So what Bill 284 says is, pursuant to this infectious disease emergency leave, we're not going to allocate or, or give employees three days of paid leave. And what we're going to do is we're going to make that retrospective. So you can claim this paid leave from April the 19th, 2021, all the way up to September the 25th, 2021. And you've got three paid days leave. And what the legislation also says is that employers will administer this through their ordinary payroll. They can deem any time taken off as a full and complete day so that we don't get into the issue 
around, well, Nick took three hours and Ron took four hours and how do we now deduct the pay and only claim for a portion? So we can administer it that it's a full day. If you're going to take some time off to go and get a vaccine, then you take the whole day off. If you need time off in order to recover from side effects from a vaccine, you can take a full day. You don't need to take you know, an afternoon or whatever the case may be. And the employer can insist on that. So how does this all type? What does this mean for employers? Well, there's a couple of things in my view. Firstly, the legislation says that as an employer, we'll have 120 days to claim a reimbursement of this paid leave. It's up to a maximum of $200 per day or the employee's actual, actual wage for that particular day. Well, just having a look at it, and I, I actually looked into this yesterday and last week again, if you're gonna claim from the WSIB, one would think that the 120 days is not a big window of, of time to do so, especially when you've got 40 or 50 employees who've already taken this paid leave. Each of them is an individual application as I see it, but the WSIB still don't have any information as to how this application is gonna be made. The forms haven't been released to anyone and we're almost a month into the 120 day time period. The act also says that if you submit a claim late or if your claim is incomplete, or if the claim doesn't qualify for the paid leave, it will be rejected and there's no right of appeal, nor is there any request for reconsideration. So the WSIB's decision is final on this particular issue, which is of some concern to us. The other thing is that the employer is bankrolling this leave. So if you, hadn't, if you didn't have leave, paid leave in your business before, you're now paying it out, which is all fine and well because the government will turn around and say, but it's $200 a day. We're reimbursing you anyway, you're gonna get the money. What I don't see in the legislation is when, when that money is gonna be reimbursed. So it doesn't say within seven days or 14 days of your application being accepted, the money's reimbursed and how. So there, I think that there's still some regulations to come under this legislation. And again, as we know with COVID, the focus is on speed rather than perfection. So the legislation, the benefits been pushed with the mechanics to only come thereafter. So um, just the, just, you know, some thoughts around Bill 284. Um, and then just some questions that I've, uh, that I've encountered around Bill uh, 284. And really the issue is, what happens if you've got an employee who already provided paid leave? So let's say we have an employee who was giving three days of paid leave anyway for COVID-related reasons. We decided to just give that to staff while we're moving through the pandemic. And a particular employee may have used their, their three paid days of leave in the first week of April this year. They took it because they had symptoms or they went for a test or whatever the case may be. Now this legislation comes in and says retrospective to April the 19th, you get three further days. And so here's the first issue of contention. The employer said, but I've already given you three. Now you're taking another three. So I, I kind of set the two off, right? And I understand why that's a tough pull to swallow for an employer because it's not just about the $200 per day. It's about losing the productive capacity of that employee for that particular day or for three days, which is surely worth a lot more than $200 per day. But effectively, if we have a look at the black letter law of this legislation, it's effectively saying, unless your employer gives you three paid days between this period, April 19 to September 25, unless you already have that, you are entitled to take it. So if we've given paid leave, and it's already been utilized, but it was utilized before this period, it seems to me that the interpretation is that there's a further three days during this time period. By the same token, if the employer does provide three paid days and it falls within this period, well, then there's no ability to, to be reimbursed because this legislation is saying, but you've already got it. There's a, this is a greater right or benefit sort of introduction. So if you've already got the benefit through your employer, through contract or practice or otherwise, and it falls over this period, well, then you've got it and there's no reimbursement from, from the WSIB. And here's perhaps one miss on the legislation. So employers who have conferred a benefit on employees during the pandemic and given, for example, three days of paid leave, and that applies during this period, you're funding that and there's no ability to be reimbursed. Employers who hold back or who couldn't give paid COVID leave or paid sick leave during this period now have the ability to be reimbursed. So they're not really out of pocket in terms of the wage bill for that. So I think that's a little bit of a miss and maybe a little bit unfair for those employees who had walked the extra mile to give the benefit, but it is there and, and that's sort of the way that it's working at the moment. Again, we, as we know with COVID things change almost overnight, weekly. 
we may see further regulations that allows employers to, to claw back those amounts of money. Um, just one other example, what, do we, what happens where an employer only provides one day of paid sick leave and it applies over this period? Well, then you'd only be able to be reimbursed for the remaining two, just to top up the employee to the total of three. Um, some interesting questions came up uh, when I spoke to another group of, of employers. And one of the creative questions was, well, what happens if we just revoke the policy that we have on providing COVID paid leave? Let's revoke it or let's change the contract of employment. If, and I think that's a different can of worms, but let's revoke the policy and let's take away the right for the three days, which means we can then claim through the, US, the WSIB, which means we get a reimbursement. Well, the legislation's covered that angle off too. It says if you do that, if you change any policy, if you change any contract or practice, then effectively it denies your right to be reimbursed at any point in time. So there's kind of a holding pattern that the legislation introduces. So for those of you who are creative thinkers and your minds have already gone there, um, that, that's maybe one, one gap that they've already plugged. Um, and then uh, just one concern that I have around paid leave, the pr provincial government is still speaking with the federal government in order to top up the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit, which is the federal benefit that's available. Now that was previously only available for two weeks. It's now been extended to four weeks. An employee who qualifies for the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit can get up to $500 per week for a four week period. There's pretty much a three day waiting period, which I think is where the provincial paid leave comes in in order to cover the gap. But the province has been saying to the federal government, we wanna top that up. We wanted that to top that up to $1,000 a week. And I, I think that talks are still ongoing there. As far as I can see, there's still resistance from the federal government on that. Just one, one issue of concern or just to be aware of is that if that comes through, it effectively then entitles an employee to claim $1,000 uh, a week for four weeks. That's, that may be an incentive for many employees. With summer coming up, with the weather getting better, hopefully we're gonna have some of these restrictions uh, sort of you know, released a little bit and people can start meeting socially again, I think that that's, that's an uncomfortable position for any employer to have, especially given the fact that we can't ask for medical proof or a medical note. So if you say that you need to take time off and it's COVID related reasons, or you've been exposed and you need to isolate for 14 days, you've potentially got people who financially are, are still sort of benefiting quite significantly there. Uh, the other issue that I thought was important to just mention, uh, which was really relevant during COVID, is the issue of temporary layoffs. We know that a lot of employers were either shut down, or if you were essential, the economic downturn was such that your business couldn't function the way it used to previously. So a lot of employers were compelled to place staff on, on a temporary layoff. And I think at March last year, at least, most people thought that that was going to be a short-term issue. We thought that we we're going to be shut down for a few weeks and everyone would be back by sort of June or July and it would be back to, back to normal business. But effectively, there's time limits under the Employment Standards Act. So when you implement a temporary layoff, you have to adhere to those time limits. If you don't, it's, de it's a deemed termination under the Act. And I think as COVID sort of ran through the pandemic and those time periods got closer and closer, the government realized that it needed to introduce a protection for employers. And that protection came in the form of a regulation, which effectively said, if you've been placed on a temporary layoff, first of all, we're going to deem that temporary layoff as infectious disease emergency leave. And because it's deemed as infectious disease emergency leave, it doesn't matter what your contract said, whether you had language in your contract to say you could be laid off from time to time, because it's infectious disease emergency leave, and therefore it can't be a constructive dismissal either. So there, there was the specific protection that was introduced through a regulation. Obviously, employees were up in arms. Employers were sort of, you know, putting their hands together because it was that little bit of relief that was hopefully going to get us all through that little bit of time, uh, which is now a year and a half down the line. But what happened subsequent to that, and Ron and I have been tracking this, is that plaintiff counsel got creative. So they said, so this regulation was introduced pursuant to the Employment Standards Act. And it excludes the possibility of a constructive dismissal in circumstances where I've been temporarily laid off and where I don't have a contract that says I can be laid off from time to time. So that's under the Employment Standards Act. So we'll just relabel our claim and we'll bring our claim under the common law. 
because under the common law, we say that we've got a self-standing claim to constructive dismissal. And we've seen a number of this, a number of these suits and litigation come through. And one of them has got through the courts in the last week and a half. So I thought it was just important to share with you what the latest update is on that. The court has effectively said, and it's sided with plaintiff counsel thus far, it has said that if you were temporarily laid off uh, due to reasons related to COVID, um, that you still, that all that that did is that it rendered it no longer a constructive dismissal for purposes of the Employment Standards Act. But you still retain the right to claim constructive dismissal under the common law. And that's kind of, in a, in a short summary, that's where the court has come up with. So effectively, the message back to employers is that if you've, if you've placed employees on a temporary layoff during COVID, and many employees still have employees on a temporary layoff, that that amounts to a constructive dismissal unless you had language in your contract to the contrary. And in any event, it may be a deemed termination because you've exceeded the, the time limits. So I think just a few thoughts on that. Ron and I have considered that decision pretty closely. And there are certainly a lot of arguments that were not brought before the court. Uh, I've spoken to opposing counsel on one of those matters who agrees that there are some shortcomings where certain aspects may be relevant to this very issue and this interpretation of the law, which the court hasn't yet heard. So really, without getting into the specifics, the short message I just wanted to share with everyone, I don't believe the jury's out. You'll hear about this ocular health decision, which is already proclaimed on the issue. And if you've temporarily laid off, everyone now has a claim. Our message to you is, I wouldn't be worrying about that. This matter may still go on appeal. And there are a few hundred cases behind ocular health about to get into the court with numerous of these arguments that have not yet been tested by the court. So just sit tight for the time being. And if you have those claims or you have concerns, please reach out and, and chat to us. We can share more detail. Um, but not to panic at, at, at the moment. And then really just the last issue that I wanted to share, I know that we're running out of time. A lot of employers are concerned when dealing with COVID about liability. What do we do if someone picks up COVID in the workplace? Can we be sued? Um, are we going to be exposing ourselves by asking Nick to come into the office because it makes more sense and he's more efficient that way and he needs to operate a particular machine or computer and therefore we want him here. But what if he contracts COVID? Are we going to sit with this big claim? And I just wanted to share and really give a feather in, in each of your caps, Bill 218, which came out already in November last year. There's very little written about Bill 218, but it was introduced by the provincial government. And it effectively says, provided a person, including an employer, provided you comply with public health advice recommendations and guidelines, and you do so in accordance with the standard of good faith, provided you've done those things, there is no claim against you provided obviously there's no gross negligence, et cetera, but it kind, of, it kind of puts in place some sort of protective measure that provided you're taking good faith efforts to implement all of your COVID protocols and are towing the line, and there's nothing found sort of strange or really short, any real shortcomings in your, in your approach, that we sort of immune from any claims being brought against us. So I just wanted to share that. I can distribute a copy of the legislation if there's an interest for anyone, or if you wanna sort of stick it in the top drawer for in case, um, it is there, it's available, and, and I just wanted everyone to have that. Ron, back to you. Thank you, Nick. That whirlwind tour through all things COVID. That was awesome. Uh, Chad, how are we doing for time? We're good. We're, we've got about 20 minutes left, so we've got lots of, uh, lots of time left to, to carry on. And we can certainly, I haven't seen any questions come in, but I guess just like if people do have questions, fire away. I know, Ron, you've got a few things to, uh, to go over, but uh, yeah, I think we've got lots of time left. No, excellent. No, no thanks, Chad. And just one of the things that Nick uh, chatted about that I'd like to pick up on is the whole notion of the vaccines, because I mean, that certainly is going to be something that's front and center for everyone. And I've been a little bit surprised, perhaps disappointed by some of our colleagues in the legal profession who have very quickly jumped on this and said, yeah, you can mandate vaccines. It's kind of a scary position to take because it's much more complicated than that. I mean, I think as, as Nick highlighted, there's various factors to consider in, in that question, right? Uh, Nick made reference to the drug and alcohol testing cases, many of which actually went to the Supreme Court. Keep in mind that those, those uh, cases are really around, you know, people getting drug or alcohol testing when they're in safety sensitive positions, right? And it's also focused on using the least intrusive means possible to conduct the testing. 
So a saliva test, uh, although it's intrusive, is less intrusive than getting a needle stuck in your arm, right? So that's, that's one thing to, to remember. And in fact, if anything, those cases tell us that it's a very, very circumscribed situation under which we would allow any form of drug or alcohol testing. Typically it's post-accident or, or near miss. Typically it's when someone has a dependency issue and we've contractually agreed to do testing. So it's not as simple as just saying we can do it. Uh, similarly with the cases that, that Nick referred to the mask or vax cases, they really come out of the hospital sector. So the basic premise was hospitals were telling their staff, including their nurses, um, you have two options. You can either wear a mask or you can get a vaccine. And those cases came up really around the 2015, 2016 timeframe. And from a historical walk down memory lane perspective, what's, what's really interesting about those cases is the 600 pages of science that told us that masks don't do anything. So, I mean, really those cases, a, a, a large element of those cases was the, the Nurses Association, the Ontario Nurses Association, which is a very powerful union um, and who objected to this, these policies said, look, we have a lineup of scientists waiting to come in and testify to tell us that the masks don't do anything, right? So I don't know if things have changed in five years, but that was certainly the view then. Uh, I'm not gonna comment on the view now, I'll leave that up to everyone's better judgment, but that was certainly the scientific and the arbitral view in, or, sorry, view in, in 2015, 2016. So, you know, having said that, it leads us to these issues around policies on vaccination and where does it take us? Well, certainly in those arbitration cases, the Ontario Nurse Association was successful in arguing that a, MAC, a mask or vax policy is coercive. Basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to shame us into wearing masks or to, no, shame us into getting vaccines by telling us if we don't get a vaccine, we're gonna be stigmatized because we're the folks walking around in masks. So again, it's not as simple as just saying, go get a vaccine, because if you think about those cases, the basic premise is the hospitals recognizing that we can't just force someone to go get a vaccine. Because if we could, that would obviate the need for a mask or vax policy. We wouldn't need a policy if we could just say, okay, nurse, go get a vaccine, but we can't. So I think that was recognized. I think it brings us to a very interesting perspective or, or important perspective on this whole question of vaccination. I mean, it's not a broad-based uh, analysis or assessment. It really is hierarchical. And the first part of the hierarchy is, has this been publicly legislatively mandated? If the government is not telling us that we have to get vaccines, I would not want to be the employer going out on the thin, thin limb and saying, yeah, well, that, whatever the government says, I mean, we're saying you have to get a vaccine. Because the second part of the uh, of the hierarchy is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, right? So a lot of the older cases that may be dealt with school vaccines or other things, they were all decided prior to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so, you know, I think there's a, there's a, there's a heavy onus on an employer who's trying to say that we require vaccines to get over that charter hurdle because presumptively the charter is going to say that you don't have the right to intrusively stick a needle in someone's arm. So that's another important consideration. Third, I think there's the, the consideration around, um, you know, the industry that you're in. So if you run a bake shop versus a hospital, I mean, I think common sense would dictate that, you know, the bake shop, we have two people, it's a large facility, we could be separated. Maybe we don't need the vaccine versus if we're working shoulder to shoulder in other environments. So I think the industry is, is important. As Nick uh, pointed out, what other measures have we taken? Is a vaccine truly the least intrusive means or the only means that we can use? And I think some of that is gonna be based on statistics. As we get to herd immunity, as we get to more people who are vaccinated, as we get to death rates that are plummeting because those who are most at risk have already been vaccinated and or have had COVID, it begs the question, do we need to get vaccinated at this point? You know, so that's another consideration that we should keep in mind. Um, a couple of other things. Number one, I think most medical ethicists or folks who are involved in medical ethics would say that you can't mandate vaccines. I think that's the basic position that those in the medical ethics community uh, have taken. And lastly, from a political standpoint, we should never underestimate the power of some of these provincial unions, like the Nurses Association, for example. 
So again, I, I would anticipate that they would fight these kinds of policies, these mandatory vaccine policies, whether they're legislated or just something that are developed by hospitals, for example, I think they will fight these tooth and nail. So much more to come on that, but I just wanted to maybe share the cautionary tale to employers. Don't believe the first thing you read or don't believe everything you read because it is a very, very textured, heavily layered discussion. And it's not as simple as saying we can mandate vaccines or can't mandate vaccines. Um, so wanted to share that. It looks like there might be a question, yeah. Chad. Yeah, we have one question. So the question was just around, um, can you, um, can you ask during an interview, uh, so for potentially for a new hire, uh, if someone has been vaccinated and or could you put it on a, like a questionnaire that's not mandatory for them to answer? I would say, I would say presumptively not, presumptively not now, and there's, because there's other layers of protection. I mean, the first question would be what industry or sector are you in, right? What's the basis for asking the question? Secondly, what other protections do you have in place? Right? Is it truly necessary that, that this person be vaccinated? And keeping in mind that we still have sort of the questionnaire, we have other opportunities available to us, such as sick days, we have uh, testing available. So, so there's different things that we could do before we get to that place of have you been vaccinated? So I would say for now, certainly the answer would be presumptively no. Um, so I'm going to assume everyone's sick of talking about COVID. So, and I thought I would maybe <laughs> pivot to some uh, hopefully more encouraging, optimistic topics. And that's really trends and what we're seeing on the front lines. I mean, I, I think certainly Nick has done a ton of litigation already around these COVID related issues. Uh, I'm certainly seeing them in the arbitration context with unions who are filing grievances over layoffs and over the idle and various things. So I think that litigation is alive and well, and that will continue to uh, to develop over time and we'll certainly keep everyone posted. But I think if we put our foot in the other camp of what are we looking to do as we emerge from COVID? And, and I'm sort of putting this in the context, Chad, of, of other discussions you've had on this webinar series, uh, series, other presenters that you've had. And, you know, just looking at it optimistically, what type of workplace do we want to have, right? What should we be doing to prepare ourselves for the future? And this is really a great opportunity to do that. Well, from a trends perspective, and this is really just anecdotal, just us sort of reading what everyone else is reading and looking at the words that seem to be floating out there in the internet. Um, certainly leadership, I, I believe, and, and I'm sure you agree with me, Chad, leadership seems to be front and center, right? And I think that employees are coming out of the pandemic just you know, demanding a new form of leadership. So the old school manager, I don't think is really going to cut it, you know, as we move forward. I think people are looking for a new form of leadership or new forms of leadership. I think there's really two reasons for that. I think part of it is situational. COVID, right? A shift in focus, a shift towards a, a great shift towards mental health, a shift towards, you know, personal well-being, a shift towards resilience, right? right? A shift towards more balance in our lives. Those things are all healthy developments, but they do have an impact on the workplace, right? And we still have to be able to manage people. We still have to be aware of potential allegations of favoritism. Oh, I know that, you know, that, that Jenny, you know, has this particular activity that she participates in Wednesday afternoons, but I can't really tell everyone what it's about. Why is she the favorite, right? So, you know, dealing with those types of very practical employee relations issues. You know, things around discipline, time and attendance, measuring performance. It's going to be a balancing act for employers. But I think if we really think through the issues and think through the workplace we want to have, we can find workable solutions for all of these and, and still honor the leadership that people are looking for. So I think there's that situational element. But I think what we've already seen even pre-COVID has been the generational element of it. Right. And the generational demand of younger workers, younger employees who are looking for new forms of working relationships they are looking for new forms of leadership. And I think honoring that as well. And I think COVID has given us an opportunity to retrench and really think about those things. Right. So so I think there's opportunities there really to to consider how we're behaving as leaders, how we're leading our organizations, our employees and maybe coming up with some new ideas. And, you know, again, I think keeping in mind that with these new ideas come potential challenges and making sure that we've accounted for those. Um, you know, a second trend or development that we're seeing, I, I believe is, as, as Dick, uh, Nick pointed out earlier, issues around working from home, 
right? And a lot of those initiatives, uh, you know, working from home, there's, you know, there's, there's new developments, new challenges around managing overhead, cost of layoff. Some of the things, those things are decreasing as more people work from home, we may have less overhead. We may have less need to engage people on a first time, uh, sorry, on a full-time basis. Think about the impact of artificial intelligence, right? Think about the impact of all these wonderful technological tools that we have. If anything, that may result in a trend in some of the traditional roles that employees are performing, right? Now, having said that, we still need people, but we may need them, as Nick pointed out earlier, we may need them more for outcome-based reasons as opposed to staffing reasons. So just rethinking our workflow, rethinking our organizations, our operations, rethinking what we truly need. How do we reformulate that from an employee relations perspective or from a staffing perspective? Do we engage with more independent contractors, right? We're looking at maybe local initiatives or more of a services-based marketplace where I need these particular services in my organization, but I don't need the overhead of someone having someone full-time. And this person may wanna work from home and I may want to you know, be able to, to work with that or accommodate that. So contractually, how do we develop these relationships, I think is going to be very, very important. So thinking about shifts and how work gets done, how technology gets leveraged, looking at outcomes as opposed to staffing, looking at the impact of AI, putting all these things into the mix, and then considering how do we want to develop our workforce in the future. So I think that's another trend. And a related trend really is around working from home. Uh, I think as you alluded to today, Chad, and has probably been raised even on the last seminar session, there's pros and cons to that, right? I mean, there's increased flexibility, but there may be a decrease in personal interaction as you would see in the workplace, right? There might be an increase in, in independence, but then a, a decrease in oversight, right? So it's not a one size fits all thing. Um, you know, I think we really need to consider What's best for our workplace? So things like hours of work, time and attendance, performance management, uh, you, you know, potentially discipline, accommodation. I mean, now we have this 14 to 15 month uh, training ground where we've proven that we can have people work from home. So let's fast forward in two months and say, it's time to go back to work. Well, I can't. You know, I have this family issue or I have a disability or some other reason. No, no, but we need you at work. Well, I mean, do you really? I mean, I just worked for 15 months at home. Why can't I do it anymore, right? So we're going to run into those situations. I've already had these cases from the WSIB perspective. I've had cases of people slipping down the stairs when they're going to get coffee. That's a WSIB claim when they're at home, right? So we got to think about these things. Um, you know, cer certainly from a, a cyber hygiene, from a data security perspective, there's going to be immense new challenges. How do we put a security blanket around our organization? Have we really thought about this? I mean, the news is full of examples of cyber hacking almost on a daily basis. I mean, I would, I would share with you, our firm has had the good fortune of, uh, we've just uh, hired a, a new individual, Ritesh Kotak, who if you Google him, you'll see him all over the news. I mean, he's on the national news. He's constantly, he is the go-to commentator for these issues. And he's a global expert, frankly, on data and cybersecurity and, you know, Part of the reason, other than the fact he's a great guy and a brilliant man, I mean, the other reason why we're engaging with him is because we really see this as being a, a critical emerging issue for workplaces. I mean, if you have a cyber breach because, you know, Jimmy goes to the Starbucks and, well, I can't be bothered. I'm just going to do a little work around. I'm not going to do the VPN thing. I'm just going to be quick. I'm going to go on the Wi-Fi here at Starbucks and you get hacked and it costs you half a million dollars. What's that do to your business, right? And Bitcoin only makes that easier. So we have to think about these things, right? As we are re-jigging, uh, reformulating our workplaces, we have to think about these things. And you know, certainly creating that security blanket around our organization, that cybersecurity blanket is a critical piece. It's critical. Um, you know, I, I, was, I really like the title of this series, Chad. I think it was, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, which is so true, you know, certainly in the political world, but it's also, uh, it's also an adage that unions like to use, right? So we have to be a little bit mindful of that as well. Unions are, they're the classic armchair quarterback, Monday morning quarterback, armchair critic, you know, uh, well, what you should have done is, well, is that really a safe workplace? 
You need us to protect you. How dare they let you come to work and be less than six feet apart, right? What, they're not giving you time off to go get a vaccine, like before the three day thing. You know, so, so unions, that's how they make their money, right? They play on these themes and they criticize. It's like being the official opposition. It's like the easiest job in the world, right? So, so unions do these things. They poke holes in what your organization has done or hasn't done and create that, those seeds of doubt in people's minds to say, man, maybe we do need a union. Maybe our employer does suck. Maybe they don't care about us, right? So we have to think about those things and just be mindful and just look for those indicators of potential discord in the workplace, potential union activity, and keeping in mind that the way unions organize today is not the same as it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, right? They're not necessary. Well, some of the old school union folks are outside the plant or the, the workplace handing out the pamphlets, right? But, but generally it's a little bit more cyber sophisticated than that now. I mean, typically these campaigns run on whether it's, you know, Facebook, you name it, uh, you know, Snapchat, what, you know, I mean, they're actually using these tools now to organize, uh, to, to go through a union organizing campaign. So just being alive to that, monitoring those activities without spying, which is a fine line, right? But just being aware, just really making sure you have the temperature. And if you are unionized, just being aware as well of, you know, some of these new tools and opportunities that unions have to cause problems. I mean, we're involved in, not currently, but I mean, certainly strikes, currently involved in collective bargaining and we have to be alive to social media, the internet. What is the, you know, even within our own, the security of our own computer and tech systems, are we at risk of hacking? You know, is the union going to sabotage our workplace uh, th through cyberspace, right? What are they doing, at, you know, in the shadows that we can't see to harm our organization? So we just have to be alive to these things in the digital space. And as we have a, an increasingly, potentially increasingly decentralized workforce, more people working in smaller cells, more people working at home, we're only at more, at, at more risk of those things happening. So just being alive to those things as well, yeah, I think is critically important. And just the last theme, last topic that I wanted to touch on, Chad, we're hearing a lot, and this is a great development. It's a terrific development. We're hearing a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion which is wonderful, wonderful initiatives. Really, we wanted to obviously see all of our workplaces across the country engaging in DNI initiatives. Great concept, but are you ready for it? Before we jump in with both feet, let's think about, and I'm not trying to be a pessimist, but let's think about the potential legal risks that, that come with our DNI initiatives, right? From an employee relations perspective, do your employees really understand why you're doing it and what it means? So if we have a DNI policy, you know, we hire or promote someone from a you know, particular group or identity, how is that managed with the rest of the workforce, right? What are the optics around that? It's a great thing to do, but we have to be mindful of the, of the group optics. Um, you know, from a human rights perspective, from a harassment and discrimination perspective, is there more risk? I think it's certainly a risk worth bearing to undergo a great initiative like, like diversity, equity, and inclusion, but just be mindful that you may be at more risks of some of these other statutory issues, such as the human rights code, such as harassment and discrimination. You know, sort of on a broader geopolitical scale, are you at risk? And I would use sort of the, you know, the well-documented example that we've all seen in the news recently, right, around some of the behaviors and activities of the Chinese Communist Party and even their reach into Canada or, or the United States, right? And, you know, there's been well-documented examples of the Chinese Communist Party reaching into the lives of like Chinese Canadians, for example, um, you know, coercing them to do things or to get certain information or what have you by threatening their families at home, right? Are we prepared for that as an organization? How does that fit in with our diversity, uh, inclusion and equity policies? So just keeping those things in mind, again, they're not issues for all employers, but as we start to adopt different things, as we start to reemerge, as we start to develop as workplaces, as we grow, as our workplaces become more robust, those things are all terrific, right? But we can't lose sight of, you know, some of the legal underpinnings, 
and some of the potential impacts of our new policies and our push forward. So I just wanted to share those thoughts really, Chad, just to get people thinking about these various great ideas and concepts that are coming out of COVID, which are super exciting, but just not to lose sight of the fact that we still have to run our organizations in a responsible way. That's awesome. Thanks, uh, Nick and Ron. So um, just to wrap things up, uh, just as a reminder, last week, next week is our last seminar. So we have a, a, a panel discussion next week with uh, four community leaders. So we have Bob Monchamp from London Machinery representing the manufacturing industry. Uh, we have Lisa Harrison from Alimentive, so the former Robarts uh, representing uh, kind of the medical research side of things. We have Mike Smith rep re representing the hospitality. So Joe Cools, Toboggans, kind of the restaurant industry. And then Chris Ryan, who's the CFO of London Airport, um, kind of speaking just in terms of looking back through COVID and, and the impacts, uh, the, the things they've gone through, but more again to the focus of our webinar series is just looking forward in terms of their outlook on, uh, on the future. So we hope you'll join us for the last week. Again, a huge thank you to Nick and Ron for your insights today. That was awesome. And uh, we hope everybody has a great day. Thanks. Thanks everyone. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Chad. And thank you everyone. Enjoy your day and be safe. <laughs>